Hey, deserving listeners, today I'm going to rapid fire answer patron emails. Let's get to it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This first email is from an anonymous listener, and she wrote in, I'm just going to summarize the beginning of her email. She emailed in to talk about The Witches, which is a recent movie remake of The Doll Book. And in the movie, they show Anne Hathaway. She's a witch, and there's a whole bunch of other witches. And they remove two of the fingers uh, to make them look like birds. I, I guess in the book, in the doll book, these it's a children. If you don't know the witches, it's a child's book, and it's been made into a movie at least a couple times. And the witches act like they're regular people, but. When they're behind closed doors, they take off their gloves and their shoes, and it reveals that they have very strange hands and very strange feet. On their hands, they just have two, like, fingers, and on their feet, they have one toe, and it's supposed to be this really creepy thing. And after the movie came out, there was a lot of people coming out saying that it was hurtful to people who have different bodies or they were born without a hand, or they were born with the fact that they just had two fingers or something like this. And it basically was making it look like if you were, if your body looked differently, or you had different feet or different hands or whatever, that you were somehow strange or like a witch, something to be afraid of. And there was a lot of arguing going on online because People really love the witches and they, you know, a lot of people like this movie. And so they were saying, oh, come on. You know, if you watch the movie, it's clear that it's not trying to shame anybody. It's just supposed to be a witch with, you know, these weird bird-like hands and and weird feet. But as more of the, uh, you know, harmed individuals were speaking up, uh, it started looking more and more like this movie actually did something wrong, and Anne Hathaway actually came forward and apologized. And I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. I feel like there's a lot of people that think that Anne Hathaway didn't have to apologize. But anyway, anonymous listener wrote in and said, As someone with a limb difference from birth, I was bullied every day by children and stared at by adults. I implore people saying this is silly or an overreaction to think of this as a way to bring up a long-standing problem of insensitivity to different-looking people. Striving for kindness, empathy, and compassion is not ridiculous. I can't go anywhere, even now, as a 26-year-old, without being stared at or asked what's wrong with me. It really ingrains the idea that I'm not right and that I have to fight, and I have to fight that idea every day of my life end of email. Yeah. So let's all be kind. Let's have empathy. Just because to uh, you, when you first watched the movie, it didn't hurt your feelings and it didn't feel and it didn't seem like it would hurt other people's feelings. Doesn't mean it's not hurting people's feelings. There are a lot of different ways that they could have depicted that in the scene. The witches could have been depicted in a variety of ways uh, and they didn't need to do it that way. And it's just another example of privilege and lack of awareness, and it's helpful for all of us to just recognize, oh, yeah, that one makes sense to me. I know what that feels – you know, all of us know what that feels like. We've all been 
transgressed upon. We've all been treated unfairly. We've all been depicted in ways that hurt us based on our identity. And that's okay. And the movie made a mistake. We don't have to necessarily throw the movie out. I don't know. But it it raises awareness. It's like, okay, you know, there, there are lots of people who are hurt by that and traditionally have been silenced because they're made to feel like they're ridiculous for complaining. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from Upper Tier Patron in California. She writes, I'm wondering if you can speak to why a client might seemingly want their therapist to abuse them. I fear being rejected or preyed upon by my therapist, but paradoxically, I am also frustrated by the measures he takes to validate me and make me feel safe. I think I want him to hurt me so I don't have to keep waiting for the inevitable. I am a woman in my 30s with a long history of surviving abuse, including sex trafficking. Do you think these things could be linked? End of email. Yeah, they could. Obviously, I would talk with your therapist about this. What you're experiencing is what we call transference, and transference in the more broad sense that because of what happened to you in the past relationally, you are experiencing similar feelings toward your therapist that don't necessarily apply. In the past, you were close to people who were abusing you. And there are a number of different effects from that. One of them is this assumption that you're going to get harmed by people, even by a therapist. And so that could lead to you, as you say, just, you know what, just let's get it over with. Because when when you're a victim and you're an ongoing victim of abuse, there is this uh, solution, so to speak, to because there's a lot of problems with that come with the abuse, right? You're, you're being abused, which is terrible. But there's also the anticipation. When is it going to happen? Is it going to happen now? Is it going to happen tomorrow? And Strangely, there's a bit of a relief after the victimization occurs because, okay, I just got victimized. I now I, I can restart the egg timer and there's a certain amount of time where I'm, I have some relief or I, I know what the abuse is now. I, I didn't know how, how much – I didn't know to what degree I was going to get abused. I, I now know the answer to that question. It was a 5 out of 10, that kind of thing. And so there's a lot of suffering not only from the abuse, but from the anticipation, the worrying, like, what is it going to look like? When is it going to happen? And so there is this uh, survival technique to just say, let's just get this over with. And some victims will even sort of provoke the abuser to get it over with because they know it's coming eventually. And so they'll just say, well, let's just do it. it. It also puts you in the driver's seat a little bit too. That's another uh, downside to being victimized, which is this notion that you're powerless. If you actually provoke the abuse to happen, at least you can say, well, I'm being abused, which is terrible, and I feel powerless, but I got a little bit of power from the fact that I kind of uh, provoked it to happen today instead of tomorrow or something like that. So there's a lot of things that could be at play transference-wise that you would want to talk with your therapist about. And this is a general topic, you know, to the, the more general topic I can point to is that a lot of people email in talking about how they have very complicated feelings about their therapist, a lot of fear about being rejected, 
a lot of love for their therapist, a lot of romantic or sexual love for their therapist, a lot of obsession with their therapist, a feeling of complete dependence on their therapist. And of course, you always talk with your therapist about this. But generally speaking, it's it just is a part of what therapy is. When you go through difficulties relationally growing up, and then you go to therapy and your therapist is stable and caring and doesn't hurt you, then a very young version of attachment will emerge for you. When when you're two years old, you don't have a nuanced attachment to your parents. You are – or even going back to say you're nine months old, you're, you're a year old – you don't have a you don't have a a very balanced you know in terms of uh, from adult standards right meaning that you want to be with your parent you don't care uh, you don't care about your parents life you don't care about your parents stress level you just need your parent and you want your parent all the time and you will yell and scream and when your parent isn't around you feel bad and you will yell and scream and that's what 1 year olds do you know, I'm sort of exaggerating for my point, but I hope you get my point. If you never get that need met when you're one, two, three years old, then you still have, you still retain that need at the age of 45. And so you go to therapy, you, you look like a put together person, you have a job, you walk around in normal clothes and you have a car and, you know, you can keep, you can manage a checkbook, this kind of thing. But then you go to therapy and that's when your one-year-old, your two-year-old needs are finally able to get met. And so the version of that attachment will be similar to when you, you – to, to the developmental stage of a one- or two-year-old, which is going to feel very strange because you're 45 and you're thinking, this is just my therapist, but I need my therapist. All I want to do is be with my therapist. I want that my therapist to take me home with me. I hang on – every word of my therapist. If we could have 10 sessions a week, then that wouldn't be enough. I need my therapist so badly. Oh, and other feelings might come along for the ride too. Like, well, eventually they're going to hurt me and so I might as well just get that over with. Or I'm terrified that they're going to hurt me, even though I rationally know that they're probably not. But I'm really terrified that they're going to hurt me because when you were young, someone hurt you. So it it sucks. It doesn't feel good. You know, people email into me. It's like, how do I cope with this? And the in the short run, you can cope by just reassuring yourself that it's normal and that feelings are okay and you don't have to act on them and you can talk about them. You should talk about them with your therapist. But the long run is, is that you're doing what you need to do with relational corrective experiences in therapy. You go through the developmental stages. You graduate to a two-and-a-half-year-old version of love. And then after another six months to a year of therapy, now you're kind of dipping into a six-year-old version of love where you need your parents, but you know you, can, you don't need them all the time. You need your therapist, but you don't need them all the time. And you're starting to diversify your attachment uh, you know, relationships. So that's the idea is it takes a long time and it's not pleasant, though. It doesn't feel good. People say, you know, how, I thought therapy was supposed to feel good. And, yeah, it, it can. But it, if it's going to work in this way, it often will have this very frustrating and very 
painful experience that comes along for the ride. You, you do what you can, emotional regulation, you work on that. You have relationships outside of therapy that you can depend on. You talk with your therapist about it, but the, often there's just no way around it. All right, let's go to another email. All right, this next email is actually related to this one, so I thought I'd lump these two together. This is from upper-tier patron Melly from Las Vegas. She writes, I think I have a disorganized attachment style due to abuse that I experienced growing up. I feel that my individual therapist and I have built a good therapeutic alliance, and I have most certainly become attached to her. But lately, I feel that I'm stuck. I trust her more than I've trusted anyone. Every week I go in there, and I have things I need to say, but once I am sitting there, I freeze with fear, and I leave angry at myself for not saying what I need to say. I was hoping you could talk about strategies to reestablish a connection to the self. I am starting to feel hopeless about really being able to know and love myself. I want to love and be loved from that place, but to really be seen by someone really terrifies me. So just chiming in here. Yeah, so this is part of that problem is that, and it's really a huge tragedy of of abuse, is that your childhood is terrible because you're abused and mistreated. And then the complex that you carry with you into adulthood continues to plague you and cause so much suffering. You would think that once you're free from the abuse, then you deserve to live a good life and to be free of that tyranny, but it gets internalized, which is just awful. And so you're, you say you might have disorganized attachment style, meaning that the abuse was, uh, you know, to a degree such that you don't trust humans at, at all. You don't trust attachment figures because they were the people who would hurt you. But you want to trust attachment figures and you want to get close to people. But as you get close, you become even more scared. That's the whole definition of disorganized attachment. Sometimes they use the word fearful attachment because part of the self wants to meld with attachment figures. But another part of the self is utterly terrified, not just kind of distrustful, but frozen with fear like you talk about. And so you're in therapy and you want to, you know, race ahead by talking about things that are very vulnerable for you, and then you freeze with fear. And the solution is not to beat yourself up. I mean, you're, you're, you say that you leave angry at yourself. You should be celebrating the fact that you made it to therapy. So many people with your um, you know, attachment style will avoid therapy like the plague because it's so scary. So the fact that you're doing it is beautiful and wonderful and is probably going to help you. You want to talk with your therapist about that, of course, but it's okay. And this is part of the internalization of the abuse is as you're sitting there, you're having understandable fears because people who get close to you, they normally would hurt you. So it's okay that you're afraid. You should be afraid. Life has taught you that you should be afraid of that. And you are sitting there having normal fear, given your history, and then after you leave, you beat yourself up. Well, this is part of the abuser. The abuser is getting you one way or the other. The abuser is yelling at you as you leave the therapy office. Look at you. You're such a, you're such a weakling. You're so afraid. No, you must push back on that and say, no, 
I will not listen to the internalized abuser anymore. I am brave. I went to therapy. Yes, I have a ways to go, but I'm doing much better than I was before. And I'm facing my fears one step at a time. And I'm going down that road. And no to the internalized abuser. You will not bring me down. You will not make me feel bad. You will not prevent me from having a glorious moment of I was kind of vulnerable in this session. I was a little bit disclosing in this session. Or I just went to therapy today. So no internalized abuser, you will not do this to me. You, you, it's unfair. And so you have to push back. And uh, that's the answer because it's, it's an internalized abuser voice and it's not fair to you and it's just, it's just not okay. Um, so then you ask, you know, why is this fear so intense and visceral? Well, because of what I was talking about. You also, why is it so hard to figure out where it stems from? Why is it so hard to figure out where it stems from? Well, it's obvious where it stems from. I mean, I didn't read your whole email. You, you went into some detail about the various ways you were abused by people in your family growing up. So uh, that's where it stems from. It's it's almost universal what you're talking about. Bob talks about this as well. He was abused when he was growing up by his father and has disorganized attachment style as well. Uh, why is it so hard to keep that leap of or to take that leap of faith with my therapist? Well, like I think I answered that one too. Why am I so afraid that she is going to abandon me once she sees who I really am? Yeah, so Bob talks about this too. It's a schema of defectiveness that's really hard to get rid of. But you just keep going to therapy, and uh, it's not rational. You just have to remind yourself that even though it feels deeply true that there is something deeply wrong with you— and that your therapist will absolutely abandon you once they get to know who you really are. You have to have a part of your brain that says, no, I'm not going to believe that. It's not, it's not true. I'm a good person. You have to have something to stand on. Now, you, all, you, you talk about, like, you know, how do I get a sense of self? Well, to, meaning that how, I, you need a sense of self. To, a lot of the things I'm talking about, you need a sense of self for. You need the ability to turn to the self and say, hey, self, please soothe me in this moment. And that takes time. You know, it takes a lot of relational corrective experience therapy. And uh, you need a lot of space for someone to look at you, to pay attention to you and ask you what you want, ask you what you need, ask you how you feel. And ever so slowly, you know, you develop that. And uh, it it usually happens. In, in all the clients that I've worked with, it takes a long time, but it works. So just keep going to therapy. All right. Let's read another email. All right, this next email is a timely email. Upper tier patron Selena from New York writes, I have the unlucky timing of finishing graduate school this spring of 2020, and my ability to start my career has been severely impacted by the pandemic. I had a job lined up after graduation that I lost a couple months ago because of the economic crash. Right now, I'm trying to find a new job in my field, but I'm feeling incredibly depressed and and demoralized. Even though I consciously know it's not my fault, emotionally I can't shake the feeling that I've failed somehow and it's constantly dragging me down. 
During times like these, when so many things are out of your control, how do you manage the stress and how do you resist the urge to blame yourself? End of email. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things I'll say. The first thing I'll say is it it sounds like you might be edging into depression and obviously you want to get treatment for that. Depression is no joke and it needs treatment. So, I, you know, therapy and meds you want to try out um with a with a professional the the one thing that i i often find with people when it comes to unemployment is it it the feel that the feeling of worthlessness transcends any rational ability to um, push back on it you know there will be people who will say you know what i i want to quit my job and i'm going to wait like three months to find another job and they they make all the plans and they're like, I'm just going to take three months off. I'm not going to do anything. And they quit their job. And then during the, th- you know, the, f- the three months, like there's a couple weeks into the three months, this creeping feeling of depression will start to kick in. This creeping feeling of worthlessness will kick in. I don't know if it's innate in us or it's beat into our heads at, in our culture, but when we're not productive, it, a lot of not everyone's like this, but a lot of people are. When we're not productive in some way, then we have a feeling of depression, a feeling of demoralization, a feeling of anxiety, a feeling of worthlessness. And a lot of us will attach our, uh, you know a significant amount of our worth to our jobs. Which is okay. There's it's nothing wrong with that. But when things aren't going right, and there's a pandemic, and the, there's an economic crash, and you can't get a job, then then we have a problem, right? So, I, I I've worked with a lot of clients on this issue, a lot of clients, and it, it's not surprising. It's not surprising that on one hand you're like, well, it's not my fault. I can't get a job. Uh, but why do I feel so terrible about myself? So the thing that I will work with clients on is find some way to be productive, whatever that means to you. Dig down deep and figure out what what makes me feel like I'm being productive, whatever that means. Is it volunteering? Is it working to get a job? Is it training uh, to be a, you know better at your job? Is it reworking your garage or organizing your computer, something to scratch that itch where you feel like you are being productive. Because for some people that works. I don't know if that would work for you, but, you know, obviously you do want to talk with a therapist about it, but that's one thing. The other thing is, is just trying to push back on it as best you can. Just be like, no, I, I, my worth is not in question just because there's an economic you know, crisis right now. The other thing is, is to uh, talk with other people about it and just be like, so am I worthless? And get some support from your friends. Talk about it. Don't be shy. Um, you know, w- whenever I hear questions like, how do I manage, you ask, how do I manage the stress? Well, that implies somehow you're supposed to do it by yourself. Don't do it by yourself. Get with other people, maybe even other people who are having a hard time getting employment. And uh, express it. Just be like, oh, my God, I'm so stressed out. And, and talk about it. 
be with others. We are social creatures, and we should look socially for solutions. All right, let's take a break, and we get back. Let's read some more emails. Hey, Deserving listeners, as you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist. But I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, we're back from the break. This next email, anonymous upper-tier patron writes in, I'm currently dating someone who struggles with low self-esteem. After years of therapy for myself, I have improved my self-esteem. I I think I am further down the road than my partner is regarding self-esteem, and he triggers me with his low self-esteem. His low self-esteem negatively affects the relationship with me when he is competitive with me, when he avoids conflict by lying, and when he seeks attention from strangers to confirm how muscular and attractive he is. I fear his low self-esteem will result in him cheating on me. Even with him going to therapy, it's hard to believe he will change quickly. Is having more security with oneself an incompatibility in a relationship, or are self-esteem differences within partners inevitable? At what point is having low self-esteem toxic in a relationship? End of email. Well, anonymous upper-tier patron, these are very broad questions. I get your questions, but I don't have enough information to answer it very specifically. So I'm guessing whatever I say is probably not going to land very specifically to you. But generally speaking, what you're talking about here is that you have worked on your self-esteem He's working on it, but he is behind you in terms of his work, and you see the result of his low self-esteem. And some of the coping mechanisms he has to his low self-esteem could result in him cheating on you and hurting you. And you're dating this person, so you're like, "Uh, should I break up with him? what do I do here? It seems like it's a recipe for a disaster. I can kind of see what's happening. Or is the next person I'm going to date going to have low self-esteem or or much higher self-esteem than me? Is it normal to date people who have different self-esteems? The main thing I'll say is I don't know what the future of your relationship holds for you and him. Given what you said, things could work out for sure. He's in therapy. You're in therapy. He's working on his stuff. You're working on your stuff. It could even result in him cheating on you, and you could still persevere in the relationship if you two decided to recover from that. So it's not 
a, a disaster necessarily if someone cheats, especially if it's for self-esteem reasons, right? Because they're they're trying to run away from something and in doing so, they harm you. And there's a lot of different ways that people will do that to their partners, including cheating. And what it means is that it wasn't that they cheated because they didn't like you. It was they cheated because they were desperate. And that's actually a pretty big reason why people cheat. That doesn't mean we're supposed to put up with it all the time, of course. But I'm just saying that if that's what it was, if you get cheated on because he doesn't like you, <laughs> then that's different than if he cheats on you because he's so dependent on you and that he's scared of depending on you or something like that. Or someone insulted him and he needed some pick-up, pick-me-up to his self-esteem. I don't know. Anyway, the point is, is that I don't know. And uh, there's a lot of strengths what I'm hearing here. But on the other hand, if you're seeing behavior in him, like he avoids conflict by lying and you've tried to give him feedback and you've asked him to talk about it with his therapist and it hasn't changed, it wouldn't be weird or unwise to cut and run and say, you know what, I think given where I'm at in my growth, development, and therapy, I'm looking for someone that is kind of at my level. I don't want to be worried about what this person is going to do. I don't want to have to look down on this person and say, get your stuff together, you know, or let's let's start let's start talking about some serious issues in therapy. It wouldn't be weird to do that. Uh, wouldn't be unwise to do that. So it it does it all. It's a you know d- dating is a very strange process because no relationship is perfect. We all understand that, and when you're in a relationship and the things aren't perfect, is it the sort of imperfections that any relationship would have that you would be in? Or is it the sort of imperfection that is a deal breaker? And sometimes that's really hard to suss out. And I would continue talking with your therapist about it. All right, let's go into another email. All right, this next email is from upper tier patron Julia from New York. She writes, I'm in therapy, and in therapy, I discuss the difficult relationship I have with my entire family and how it affects my current attachment styles and low self-esteem. Of all the people you discussed on 90 Day Fiancé on YouTube, I most most resonated with the Nicole storyline because I was able to determine who the underfunctioner and overfunctioner was within my own dysfunctional family system. So just chiming in here, if you're not aware, I do these reaction videos on YouTube, and one of the one of the uh, families that I watch and react to has this mother daughter combo, and the daughter is what we might call an underfunctioner. It's hard to know because we'd have to assess them in person, but and if you're not aware of, and the mom is the overfunctioner, and and a lot of people in their family are overfunctioners, but anyway. The point is, is that when you have an undifferentiated family, meaning that the family has difficulty dealing with anxiety, the family, all the family members have difficulty dealing with worries about rejection, worries about uh, you know losing relationships, worries about um, being disapproved of, worries about doing the wrong thing, worries about 
uh, anything, you know, just, just worries, relational worries that you have. Like, oh, no, what if I ask for something and I, and I don't get it? Oh, no, what if someone hates me? Or what if, what if someone doesn't want to really hang out with me even though they do? So when we have those anxieties, there are ways to deal with it in a differentiated manner, according to Boeanian theory, and there are ways that we deal with it in an undifferentiated manner. So the higher the anxiety that a family is experiencing and the higher the undifferentiation level, the higher the fusion, the more likely the family is going to develop ways of coping with that anxiety that are not functional. A functional way of dealing with it is to, you know, let's say someone hurt your feelings in your family and you're just like, okay, you know, last time I went home, my brother said this thing. And a functional way is to talk with them and say, hey, just want to let you know that something you did last time kind of hurt my feelings. I'm not blaming you, but I want to have a good relationship with you. And I just wanted to tell you that because it's been on my mind. And then your brother says, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that. And thanks for telling me. Okay, so that's a a direct way of dealing with your worries. There was an anxiety prior to that interaction. But the both people headed into the conversation. They didn't triangulate other people. They didn't blame other people. All right. So when you have a lot of anxiety in a family and you have a, a family history going back generations of fusion and lack of differentiation, you, you, you don't have those healthy ways of dealing with your anxiety. And one of the ways that you can unhealthily deal with it, but you need to deal with it somehow. And one of the ways you can deal with it is you can say, okay, everyone is going to play a role so that we can distract ourselves from what's really happening. Uh, so one of the, and one of the manifestations of this is that a scapegoat and an underfunctioner steps forward. That person says, and this is subconscious, that this person says, you know what, I'm going to be the screw up and I'm going to sabotage my life so that everyone will have something to do. We will, as a family, have something to bond over, that everyone can bond over the fact that I'm a screw up. And then overfunctioners will step in and say, okay, I, this is subconscious as well, the overfunctioners will step in and say, okay, I will sacrifice my own needs for the greater good of the family cohesion. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to really focus on the scapegoat and the underfunctioner. And I'm going to watch them like a hawk. And I'm going to comment on everything they do. And I'm going to kind of make sure that they stay the underfunctioner by putting them down and making them feel incompetent. And if this is a child at the age of two or three, then I, as the parent, the overfunctioner, I'm going to make sure that this three-year-old feels incompetent. So I'm going to, I'm going to treat her as if she's stupid, but I'm going to do it in a loving way because I love her, but I'm going to make her feel like she doesn't know what she's doing so that she'll never step out of that role of the scapegoat and the underfunctioner. And what this does is it pre- it preserves some closeness and it preserves some love and some warmth. The underfunctioner gets attention, which everybody wants. The overfunctioner gets to feel competent. The underfunctioner gets to feel like, well, at least I have 
we have a family that we're doing something. And the underfunctioner also gets the fact that they don't have to take responsibility for themselves because no one really wants them to take responsibility for themselves because if the underfunctioner ever did take responsibility for themselves, then the family believes that they would have to face each other head on and they would fly apart. So it's a complicated family systems topic that I'm barely explaining, but I hope you get the picture. Anyway, so there's this one 90-day fiancé family, Nicole and the mother, and the mother is the overfunctioner, and Nicole is the underfunctioner, and so this upper-tier patron, Julia, watches those videos, and she's like, oh my god, I totally, when I when you watch that, I saw my own family. So going on with her email here. Both my mother and I overfunction, and both my dad and brother underfunction. In 2017, I moved to New York for graduate school, and honestly, in hindsight, I moved to escape my family. Prior to moving to New York, I was the overfunctioner within my family system. Being uh, I was a friend instead of a daughter to my mother, I worried and was constantly disappointed with my father, and I was a second parent to my younger, immature brother. Okay, so just chiming in here, she's saying, I was the overfunction within my family. I was uh, like uh, sort of enmeshed with my mom. I was very focused on both my father and my brother, and I was very disappointed in them, and I had to pick up the pieces for them a lot, that kind of thing going on with the email. Since moving to New York, whenever I visit my family for Christmas in California, they often remark on how I am difficult or negative or depressed or cynical to be around, which really hurts my feelings. I think since I moved away, I disrupted the roles within my family system, which puts everyone on edge when I come home. Is it possible that the roles within the family can be reversed so that I am now the underfunctioner to my family to soothe the family system? Is it possible to treat this type of situation with family therapy? Have you treated family systems like mine and had success? End of email. I love this email so much because I don't believe you're a therapist or someone who has gone to graduate school for systems theory, but you are speaking systems theory lingo here, which means you're smart and it means that I have effectively taught systems theory to some random people on the internet, (laughs) which just is amazing. In my field of psychotherapy, uh, us family therapists, us couple and family therapists are, we're in the minority. We're, of all the professions, we're the smallest and we're very small. And the thing we're always talking about all the time is systems theory. And, uh, And we just never managed to get the word out. And so to think that people are watching me react to reality TV shows and learning about systems theory is just hilarious. But so uh, you're very wise to ask these questions. You say, okay, I was the overfunctioner. I went away. I come back. And now I feel like I'm the scapegoat and I'm the underfunctioner. Everyone now is like focused on me and putting me down. That's not the way things were before. And then you ask, um, is it possible that the roles within my family can be reversed so that I'm now the underfunctioner to my family to soothe the family system? Yes. The answer is yes, it could be. It's possible that when you left, so when you left, the family had to reconfigure itself. It had to figure out 
what it was going to do. And just based on what you're saying, it's like, okay, you have your mom who was the overfunctioner, and then your dad and brother were the were the underfunctioner. So when you when you left, someone had to step up, maybe. And maybe it was your dad. Maybe your dad sort of stepped up into an overfunctioner position. You know, maybe your mom always needs a, a fellow overfunctioner. Maybe that's why she socialized you because as a child when you were growing up you were an easy ally that your mom could socialize into her corner and after you left your mom had to find someone else and who knows maybe she found your dad and then they scapegoated your your brother but also you you could have been scapegoated from afar even though you didn't see them and then you go back for christmas and boom, you're, you step into this whole other role that has been foisted on you, and, and you haven't seen the evolution that they have. So yeah, it's totally possible. Uh, this is what we call first-order change in systems, meaning that there's a change in that you, you are now the underfunctioner. Like, let's say that um, the whole family goes into therapy, and they're all trying to fix your younger brother. And let's say that your younger brother through this process becomes an overfunctioner. You know, maybe your mom enmeshes with him and he becomes an overfunctioner. Well, what that looks like from the outside is, well, look at little Johnny. He's now acting responsible. He's no longer fighting with his mom. And it looks like things have changed for the better. But in reality, the system is the same because now you're the scapegoat. And so this is what we call first-order change, meaning that it's change, but it's on the first order in that the system hasn't really changed. The second-order change is what we're usually looking for, which is it's a positive change to the system overall, which would p- probably mean everyone became more differentiated, meaning that they could handle the disappointment of others and and communicate more head-on and respond well when those kinds of things happen. And they develop a new routine such that it can facilitate people people's needs being met. And you don't have to have over-functioners or under-functioners in those kinds of family systems. So you ask, you know, is it possible to treat this type of situation in family therapy? Uh, yes, a thousand yeses. That's, this is bread and butter for family therapists. Um, this is this is what we do, and we would be able to see it, and we'd be able to treat it. And you ask, have I treated families like this? Yeah, I've treated a lot of families like this. I, I treated families where there were adult children, and we would work on this. It's hard to work on, you know. It it seems easy. It's just like, well, let's just stop scapegoating. No, because the problem is everyone has attachment injuries, and everyone is terrified of of each other deep down. And they also are usually having issues internally. Um, and that that's the deception of the overfunctioner. The overfunctioner will often look like they're put together. They'll often look like everything's fine. They'll often look competent and they don't need therapy. It's the underfunctioners, you know, that needs therapy. Nicole needs therapy. Rob Lee, the mother, she doesn't need therapy. But both are the same problem just on the opposite side of the coin. The Nicoles of the world, the underfunctioners, the scapegoats are obviously struggling. Their life is usually falling apart. The overfunctioner, though, they often are suffering even more. Uh, 
but they have to cover it up with competence and self-sacrifice and superiority because that's their role in the family. And no one's paying attention to the overfunctioners of the world. That's the sucky thing about being an overfunctioner is that the overfunctioners never ask for help and they never alert others that they're suffering. And they never say, hey, could someone overfunction for me for a while? I want to underfunction today. Could... And, and that's another thing I'll point out is that in healthy families, generally speaking, people are free to move within their roles. Meaning that one day you could say, you could just raise your hand and be like, I want to underfunction. Could, could someone else just take care of everything? And then the next day you're like, you know what? I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be competent. But uh, with rigid families that have to, to sort of make do with what they can find available to them, they will have rigid roles and, and the overfunctioner never gets a chance to have anyone take care of them. So that's what I'll say about that. Oh, what I was getting at was that it takes a long time to change that. You know, the overfunctioners of the world typically have years of therapy ahead of them to deal with the fact that they have a hard time being vulnerable, they have a hard time trusting, they have a hard time not scapegoating others, they have a hard time not criticizing others. Um, and you you could be 10, 15 years into therapy and still be kind of halfway there. You You could go to 10 years of therapy and still very easily in between sessions slip back into overfunctioning. And the thing you really want to watch out for, Julia, and you want to work at on in therapy is that you will have a pull. A, well, I don't know about you, but people with your background will often have a gravitational pull to date someone that's underfunctioning because you were an overfunctioner growing up and it's it's very comfortable for you to judge others, to criticize others, and to help others, to pick up the pieces for another person and to bond with people through your competence, to your love language, if you will, has been tainted with overfunctioning. And at first, people who are overfunctioners will start dating and they'll, they'll be like, ah, I fell in love. There's this great person. And then fast forward six years and you're paying all the bills and you're raising the kids by yourself and you're cleaning the house and your underfunctioner spouse is playing video games all day. And but but both people are suffering is the point. The underfunctioner is not happy either, and you had something to do with the fact that your spouse has been playing video games all day because you subtly put them down every time they tried to do something competent in the house. Every time you tried to parent the kids, you said you, they weren't doing it right, or you got anxious as they as you were letting them take the reins. You got anxious, and your spouse sensed that and said, "Oh." I guess I shouldn't do that. And so these over-functioning, under-functioning dynamics in spousal relationships play out very typically. There's a, it's a very typical progress to it, but in a very hidden way. And neither person is happy. The under-functioner is like, yeah, my spouse nags me all the time and makes me feel like crap. But, you know, I, you know, I just try to eke out my day and, and just try to find happiness and and sometimes I help, and the and the overfunctioner is like, yeah, I, you know, my spouse is is worthless and not helpful, but uh, 
but what are you going to do? You know, that's just the way he is. He, he was just born that way or he was raised that way. And anyway, it, it's, it's hard to change, but it's worth looking at. Anyway, let's go to another email. All right. This next email has to do with phone addiction. Upper tier patron Gabriella from Brooklyn, she writes, I have a sibling who checks most of the boxes for borderline. And while I'm in therapy and am learning how to set boundaries with her, another issue is the fact that she always exhibits a severe addiction to her smartphone. It's gotten to the point where she once went into a violent rage when her phone ran out of battery and I refused to to let her borrow mine. Many people besides myself have told her that they feel incredibly disrespected when they are trying to talk to her and she can't seem to take her eyes off her screen. Her excuse is usually that she has to respond to work emails. Her phone is constantly on display during meals or during any social situation. She lashes out at anyone who calmly tries to tell her that they feel ignored and disrespected when she's scrolling while they're talking. I've seen her relationships become ruined because of this issue, but I have no idea how to approach this matter anymore. She refuses to go to therapy because she doesn't believe she needs it. She equates therapy with weakness. I feel that if somehow this issue can be addressed, not only will all her loved ones be happier, but so will she. End of email. Yeah, so you started off by saying that this person seems like they might be borderline, meaning that they might suffer from borderline personality disorder. I don't know what you're seeing in the person, but if I'm going to take your word for it, I'm guessing what we would see is a severe worry and hypervigilance around abandonment and high reactivity when there are signs of rejection from other people and perhaps volatile relationships because of that, and a level of neediness because of relational traumas growing up, that kind of thing. And you're also seeing that she has a big problem with phone addiction. She And she, wow, I mean, the, the behaviors you describe is extreme. I mean, there are people who have what we would call a compulsion around their phone, and they're or people that do stuff like this. I mean, you're you're saying that her relationships have been ruined, that she, while people are talking to her, she's scrolling, and there's not likely anything that she needs to be doing. And while you're eating dinner, she's the phone is on and she's looking at it. So there are two things I'll hypothesize about. One is is that it's a part of the borderline condition in that because of relational traumas, she needs frequent affirmation that she's not being rejected and or frequent distraction from the pain that she feels. People on the borderline spectrum are in constant emotional pain. So it's possible that social media or friends texting is the are these little evidences that people like her and that that they're not going to abandon her. Now, of course, you'd say, but there are people standing right in front of her who would like to interact with her, but she's rejecting them by being on the phone. Yeah, you know, I don't know. It's possible that being in direct contact with people might be too anxiety-provoking for her. 
or she might believe that people are rejecting her in person and so she turns to social media as a way of finding someone that isn't going to reject her. It's also uh, common to suffer when you suffer from this kind of trauma, it's common to make other people feel the way you feel. So when you're around someone suffering from borderline spectrum, it it's not uncommon to feel rejected yourself. And the person suffering from borderline will do things to make you feel that way. Now, they're not doing it on a purpose. They're doing it defensively. They're trying to avoid being hurt. And in the process, they hurt other people. Anyway, so that's one option, one hypothesis that I'll throw out there. There's obviously no way I can know and probably no way that you would know that it's a part of the abandonment defense that she's using the phone. The other possibility is that it's just a separate issue and that she has a compulsion around the phone. We all understand now that the phone and social media is is designed specifically to make us feel good when we use it. It is a device that is trying to keep our attention. It's a device that's trying to take our money. Uh, There are literally millions of marketers trying to get you to stay on your phone using particular apps because there's billions upon trillions upon whatever else money involved in, in keeping people on the phone. And so some people are more susceptible to that manipulation than others. When I was talking about heroin earlier, research shows that when you get a retweet, there's a similar brain process that occurs to reward that behavior, uh, as with heroin, as with success in life. You know, if when you, when you succeed at something, uh, there's a, a bit of brain chemistry that happens to reward you, to make you feel good, like, oh, I achieved something. Heroin sort of hacks that, and the phone hacks that as well. And so it, there's, it's, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise that uh, we have a problem and that some people have a particular problem. So uh, to treat that, it, it's not as simple as just saying stop it. Or if you had a friend that was addicted to heroin, you wouldn't be like, hey, for my sake, could you stop using heroin? You wouldn't do that because you, you know that heroin addiction is a, is a thing. And phone addiction is also a thing. It is not easily changed. And she might actually want to change it, but feel like there's just no way to change it. So that's another thing. The other thing is is that, you know, you're asking, like, you know, how do I help this person? How do I – she's not going to therapy. And what do I do here? Well, you're probably in no position to help. Uh, if this is an addiction – or some elaborate defense that has to do with her personality disorder, she is powerless over it. She is 100% powerless over this problem. And you are definitely powerless over this problem. And it's important to recognize that. And that sucks. It sucks for you because you want to help, but you don't have any power. It sucks for the individual because they have a big problem, and they don't have any power over it. The solution 
is to find treatment and to start that process. And that takes a long time. So, uh, you know, and how do you convince someone to go to therapy? I, I get that question at least once a week. And I've given a lot of thought. I've answered a lot of different ways. I've dealt with it myself in my own personal life. And the gestalt, the summary that I'll say is it's almost impossible to get someone to go to therapy. Most people understand that therapy is out there, right? And you pointing it out to them isn't some novel idea. So the, the fact that they're not going already means that they've already probably thought about it and decided no. So the fact that you're pointing it out to them isn't likely the first time it's crossed their minds. So now this isn't to say you don't encourage people, you don't try because, you know, it could work and, and it is it is the thing to do for sure. But uh, it, I wouldn't, you know, get your hopes up is the thing. It's just hard. And you can definitely give feedback, but you talked about that, Gabriella. You talked about how people give her feedback and she just proceeds forward or even yells back. It's like, how dare you try to control me? You know, stop. Um, I'm trying to work here or something. Um, You know, another uh, hypothesis that I'll throw out there is that it legitimately could be related to work. Like there's a, and it could be related to the borderline as well in that she gets a lot of self-esteem from being good at work. And this is actually common to a lot of people that because of relational traumas, they lack self-esteem tragically, and they get a lot of self-esteem from work and or social media. And they might even consider social media a part of their work. And when they are interacting with people in person, their self-esteem is being challenged. And so they turn to the one place that might actually prop them up anyway. uh, So that's just another kind of way of looking at it. But yeah, I mean, if I had someone like this in my life, in my personal life, I don't know what I'd do. I think I'd see it. I think I'd try to figure out, is this something that's easily changeable or does this look like it's something that is really not going to change anytime soon? If I determined it was the latter, then I think I would just protect myself from it. Um, I, I, I have a friend who doesn't have a problem with this, but it's a similar problem. And the thing that I do is... I just limit my conversations with him. <laughs> like I still want him to be a friend and he is a good friend, but I just know that I'm I'm I can't really keep his attention very long. And so I just sort of a I don't head into it expecting much because I know that he has this issue and so I just try to eke out a relationship from you know between the the margins if that makes any sense. And that sucks, but what that does for me is I keep a relationship with him, but I am also not expecting change because I don't have any power over it and he doesn't either. And I'm not setting myself to be up to be hurt because I'm expecting it to happen. I know what's going to happen. And when it doesn't happen, then I'm pleasantly surprised, but I quickly you know, put up my guard because I've been hurt enough times that I'm like, well, let's just assume it's going to happen so you don't get blindsided by it. And that's a tragedy, right? The world should work differently than that. (laughs) 
people that have issues should get the help that they need, but it just doesn't work out that way, which is depressing. Um, you know what? I don't want to end on that note. Uh, let's let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is about Bowenian theory. Upper tier patron Nicholas from Seattle writes, How would a client who is not in contact with their family due to extensive childhood abuse, you know, how does it, how does a client who, who doesn't have contact with their family differentiate from their family of origin if they are not in contact with them at all due to safety issues? Extended family are not particularly safe either, so no contact with them either. Yet the client wants to differentiate and reduce fusion in their marital relationship and has bought into the Bowenian theory. The client has done extensive trauma work on family of origin issues and is hopeful about breaking the cycle of family fusion in future generations with their children. Yet how to differentiate without family of origin contact? End of email. So if you don't know what family of origin work is or Bowenian work is, listen to my other episodes on that. I'm not going to go into it, but I've done a number of episodes on Bowenian theory uh, available to patrons and on family of origin work, which is also available to patrons. It might might be a few years back that I did those, but it, I encourage you to listen to those if you don't know those things. But to answer your question, up to your patron, Nicholas, it's an excellent question. You're obviously a clinician. I think you're a clinician, and uh, I, I love what you're asking about. It's great. Um, so this is actually discussed in family of origin literature and differentiation literature because sometimes your parents have died by the time, or you don't know where they are, or you're an orphan. You know, there's all sorts of things that can prevent a client or yourself from having contact with your family of origin, and yet you want to differentiate. Well, there are are a lot of things you can do. One, in the Bowenian realm, you can learn to differentiate in general to everybody, meaning that you have the ability to think straight in a situation. You have the ability to recognize your own impulses and categorize them. Like an example is you're at work and you, you screw something up. And you go into a panic. All right. In that moment, you practice differentiation by thinking straight. Go like, well, I'm panicking right now, but I'm not going to get fired. And people around here, I think they like me. My boss likes me. So, you know, and really worst case scenario, I lose my job. And uh, but you know I'm I've got skills I can get hired somewhere else so it's but that's not even going to happen so I need to I need to recognize that I'm feeling the fear which is okay but I I, I can recognize that I, I it's not super rational what I'm feeling right now uh, and you know what I'm just going to go to my boss and I'm just going to tell her that I made the mistake so you go to the boss you say you know what I'm sorry I made the mistake. Instead of trying to hide it, instead of making excuses, instead of lying about it, instead of like preemptively quitting on on the job, instead of getting angry at your boss for you know blaming someone else for putting too much pressure on you, you just take responsibility and you walk right up to your boss. So the ability to do that is uh, you know a differentiated thing, and there are a lot of different. 
things one can work on without having contact with one's parents to differentiate. One, you're looking at your emotions, you're being more rational about things. You're also be, being standing on your own two feet and recognizing that you have a need for approval, but you're not going to let that cause too much anxiety in you such that you end up lying or self-destructing as a result. And and through and you're not going to triangulate and and through those activities where you actually stand on your own two feet and state what happened and incur the consequences, whatever those may be, over time you become more differentiated and it's easier for you to do those things in the future. You know, assertiveness, emotional awareness, all these kinds of things play into that. Now, if you go, if you do have contact with your family of origin and you have contact with your parents, you have additional things you can do to that. You could actually go to your parents and uh, work on these assertiveness things with the the original uh, people who resulted in your fusion to begin with, right? But that's not always advised. I mean, you're you're talking about how the client was extensively abused by their parents growing up, and you know, it, it that could be so triggering to someone, and could be re-abusing to the person depending on how things went, and so. It's not necessarily a, a good move, even if the family was up for it. But anyway, that is how I'll answer that question. I hope that makes sense. Oh, the other thing that you can do, and this isn't particularly Bowenian, but it is interpersonal psychodynamic work, which is to differentiate from you. So you, if you're the clinician and you have a client who is trying to differentiate, you can coach your client, you can guide your client on how to differentiate from you, how to stand up to you, how to not be overly anxious about your disapproval, how to uh, be communicative with you about things that might be a little tense. Uh, that That's a, another really excellent thing you could do. It approximates a relationship with a parent, but of course it's it's different. Anyway, Hope that answers the question. All right, everyone out there, you know what? I want to close with one thing that um, I got some emails, and I won't go into the specific spot. I just want to say one thing, which is that when we are victimized and abused, and, and a lot of us have been, I have been, if we've been hurt physically, if we've been made to feel bad about ourselves, if we've been made to feel afraid, if we've been made to feel controlled, if we've been stalked, if we've been uh, just made to feel stupid over time, uh, this is just a terrible, terrible thing. It happens all the time. It happens so often in a from a parent, from a spouse, from a child. You can be abused by your own children. I've seen that before. Uh, by your boss. This happens so often, and so many people are enduring such terrible mistreatment and feel alone and feel like it's their fault or feel like they don't matter, and they're looking for answers. Hopefully they're in therapy. 
but they're looking for validation. They're looking, they're unsure if they're valid. They're, they wonder if they're just being a baby about things. But what I'll say to all that is that as a podcast that talks about trauma and, and from various different angles and talks about, you know, really terrible behavior from some people, you know, I want to say evil behavior, but, and certainly that can happen, but just a more general term, I'll just say is just bad behavior, behavior that makes other people feel like crap, behavior that makes other people feel scared, you know, um, there's a, there's the, those two, those two elements, you have the victim who's being treated terribly and you have the perpetrator who is treating someone terribly for whatever reason that is. And this is happening all the time. And some of you out there, you know, are currently experiencing it. And for me to have a podcast about psychology and about the things I talk about and not occasionally just really emphasize this fact is irresponsible uh, because it is such a big part. You know, it'd be like having a podcast about environmentalism and not talking about global warming every once in a while. Just be like, by the way, we need to talk about climate change because it's happening. Even though I've talked about it hundreds of times before, you know, in the same way, I, you know, I've talked about victimization and abuse and terrorizing and trauma. I've talked about it literally hundreds of times into this very microphone on this very podcast. And it just needs to be repeated sometimes. And you deserve to be heard. You, you deserve to be understood. You deserve to be validated. You deserve to be safe. You deserve to be... Um, you know, given space to talk about what's happened to you for the rest of your life, even if it's just one year of victimization that happened 15 years ago, you deserve to talk about that frequently. There are victimizations that I've been through in my life that I might characterize as being kind of minor in terms of compared to other people. But if I think about it right now, my hands sweat. And for some of you out there, you're going through it right now, or you just left a relationship that was that way to you. And it's a silent thing in our society, and people are often silenced, and there's a ton of stigma around this, and it's not okay. But I hear you, and I will validate you, and I know what it feels like, and I'm with you, and you're with each other. And we're all with each other in that. And that's what I'll say about that. Everyone out there, take care of yourself, please. And take care of others because we all deserve it. We really, really do. 